Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, with the help of WikiLeaks, we've finally gotten some real insight into Hillary Clinton's famous speeches to Wall Street elites. And you'll probably be shocked to learn that many of the policies she happily advocated in those circles are a little bit different from the economic agenda she's pitching now. We can't be sure, but it sure seems that Clinton is some sort of centrist. But the big question is whether or not Clinton might be pulled from these positions as the tide of conventional wisdom changes. And speaking of those changing tides, last week, Jason Furman, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, gave a speech in which he all but rejected the deficit hawk consensus that President Barack Obama and most mainstream Democrats had embraced during the entirety of Obama's first term in office. In its place, Furman advocated for a new view of fiscal policy and its application, and Furman is going to join us today to discuss it further. Finally, as Republican legislators abandoned Donald Trump in the wake of constantly unfolding scandals, Trump has responded by lambasting House Speaker Paul Ryan for disloyalty. It's now an open war between the GOP's down-ticket steward and their party's standard-bearer. And it's almost as if it could have been avoided if someone had said early on that Trump was going to be a disaster for Republicans. Here to remind us about how he said early on that Trump was going to be a disaster for Republicans is our pal, Congressman Reed Ribble. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. And here's what happened first. Hello out there, everyone in America and around the world. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened your podcast chronicling our immiseration. The good news we have for you today, someday it will all be over, someday soon, hopefully. And then we'll be off this election and onto some other terrible things. But for the time being, that's where we are. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press, and I'm joined today at the outset by Mr. Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Monsieur Zach Carter. Is chronicling a word? Did I say chronicling? I think, I, I think chronicling is what chronicling. you meant. Chronicling. Yeah. People Sorry. know what you meant. So, um... Huh. I remember back during the presidential primary, people were wondering, what did Hillary Clinton say to all those banks, all those Goldman Sachs people at those speeches that we didn't know about? And her explanation was, well, I gave the speeches because of 9-11. And I remember we all thought, perfect explanation. That's just really the best explanation, of course. She did it for 9-11. We and, knew there was something we fishy all, with those speeches. We were all so <laughs> satisfied. We were ready to move on. But... It's come to light now. The contents of those speeches are something perhaps differently. Perhaps she was advocating for a set of financial policies that do not square any longer with her campaign. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. So this this stuff was released by WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Um, very, I mean, the, the, the Justice Department is saying that it probably eventually somehow can be traced back to the Russian government hacking John Podesta's emails in some sure. way. Um, 
And they don't have the full transcripts of, of all of these speeches, but there are several excerpts because somebody from the Clinton campaign did oppo on them uh, on their own, you know, candidate speeches. And it was like, here are all the things that people could flag about these speeches that would be a problem for us. Right. Does they, uh, do they just have too many staffers? I, I, this does like, not seem like it was a useful uh, exercise. Yeah. In, well, it's been useful to us. Thanks. Yeah, um, thanks, guys. Keep writing shit down and putting it in emails. That's I'm all for people continuing to do that. Well, I think the most notable thing about it is that there's just not that much that's really very damaging in there for her. I mean, there's some stuff that looks kind of silly. Uh, like she talks about a... Uh, uh, here's a quote from her. You know, there is such a bias against people who've led successful and or complicated lives, talking about how hard it is to run for president if you have lots of money. Um, oh, so hard. Seems kind of silly, but look, it's not that big a deal. If only I mean, you could fall back on doing any other job. Yeah. <laughs> or no job. <laughs> or no because job. Because you have hundreds of millions of dollars. What yeah. else is in there? Um, but what I thought was, was really interesting was the way it, it really shows that she has shifted quite a bit on her sort of macro view of what to do with the economy right. um, since she was making these speeches in 2013, 2014. She talks a lot about the, I'm going to move it way back here, guys, the Simpson-Bowles deficit reduction oh. proposal. Oh, wow. And that, I, was a, that was a it was an interesting time in our lives. Some That's of you, the grand bargain. Yeah, some of you millennials were not born when this happened, but for about three or four years in D.C., this was considered, like, the responsible, reasonable thing to do. Obama. Yeah, Obama loved this stuff. Yep. And it was basically a plan to uh, raise about $2.6 trillion in new tax revenue and cut $2.9 trillion in spending, including about $1.4 trillion in Social Security benefits. Uh, so it was an austerity plan. It was essentially a plan to raise taxes and cut spending. Uh, and... As we're going to learn later on this show uh, from from President Obama's current Council of Economic Advisors, Chairman Jason Furman, that is no longer considered a very popular thing to do in the among the elite economists. It's so out of style. It's like the the Macarena. Yeah, basically, (laughs) that's basically right. I mean, this it was rooted in this very like 1990s conception of what of you know what a responsible government does in order to grow the the economy. And and post crash, it's just turned out to be completely wrong. It's like the song "Ironic" by Alanis Morissette. Okay, okay, we no more song references. So okay, one more song reference. The the sort of ten thousand spoons here when when all you need is a knife uh, are 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 really these spending cuts. Um, Those those would have really done damage to the economy at the time, and yet they were incredibly popular. Wait, wait, just to back up on your metaphor here, like when we're talking about uh, austerity versus fiscal stimulus, you mean to say that what's ironic is it's 10,000 knives when what you need is a big scoop, right? Ah, that's a good point. That's okay. great. Yeah, well done. Because it's, Sorry, cause it's yeah. cutting <laughs> instead of spending. <laughs> yes, that's that's great. Sorry, I'm going to defend Alanis <laughs> wherever I can. Uh, well, that that would have been really damaging to the economy. And the thing is, I, I you know, there's other stuff in, in, in here where she's saying, well, when you're negotiating big deals, you need to have like a public position and a private position. And I think people are making kind of a mountain out of, you know, they're making a big fuss when they don't need to. Um, out of that one, obviously, that's how people negotiate. You know, if you walk into a negotiation room saying, I want exactly this. <laughs> you're probably not going to come away with exactly this. That's what Obama did for seven years. <laughs> yeah, and it never worked. And we've learned that Donald <laughs> Trump is the master of that style of negotiation, so, right? So, so this particular case with Social Security cuts is something that I think 
we have Bernie Sanders to thank for really changing Hillary Clinton's position. Oh, yeah, absolutely. His influence on this race is, I think, probably still kind of understated. And, and what you're seeing, what this, revel- what this revelation shows to me is that left untouched, she might have been still pimping this kind of middle-of-the-road economic stuff, but... The, I think I think part of what happened though is that the middle of the road moved. Um, I do I agree that that Bernie Sanders had a significant impact here uh, by I think you, you look elsewhere in the in the emails. Clinton sounds kind of out of touch in places like she maybe just isn't really keyed in on what Democrats and the public are thinking. Yeah, which is pretty easy to do when you're cloistered away in you know Clintonia all the time and surrounded by the number of staffers she has, which just seems incredible. Uh, I don't know how you function with all of those people swirling around you telling you what to do. Yeah, you function fabulously. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think the center really did shift on this. You, you, you look at what elite economists are saying now. I mean, back, back in 2011, 2012, progressives were screaming their heads off that Simpson-Bowles was a bad idea. It was going to hurt the economy. But, but people in, like, in, in Morning Joe land at, at Brookings, you know, the, the center of American centrism, uh, they didn't take any of that stuff very seriously. They just thought these people were nuts. But now... The prevailing view is actually that those people were right, and economics has adjusted, and I think Hillary Clinton has adjusted with it. Now, there was something in those Clinton email excerpts that I did think was damaging, which was when she said to some bank that she supported hemispheric free trade and open borders. Um, we know that the Clinton administration in the 90s signed NAFTA and that it's hurt workers, according to many studies, um, and that she now has a more skeptical position to it. But in 2013, at the time she had said that, she had already said that she wanted to renegotiate NAFTA. So I, I thought that was very contrary to her her I, public position. I think that's right, but it's also important to remember that while she said that she wanted to renegotiate NAFTA in the 2008 race, she was uh, you know, an international trade official at the Obama administration uh, as Secretary of State. So she was working on the Trans-Pacific Partnership at the time. Which and here again, I think you have you have another case where the center has shifted. There are a lot of centrists who are now willing to say they have concerns about the existing sort of status quo on globalization. Um, the the I want to have a one common market with open borders uh, kind of conception like that's basically talking about turning you know the Western Hemisphere into something sort of like the European Union. And there are real benefits for that uh, for in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the, the political benefit for Europe has been. I mean, there's there's more solidarity and stuff. It has also not worked out at all. Uh, and the open open trade, open borders stuff, you really need a lot of governmental coordination to make that come anything to look to, to work in any way. And it's certainly not the, the way that people are rethinking trade now is certainly not in the direction of of more open trade everywhere around the world. It's 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 in the opposite direction. Just to just to put a button on this, let's flash back all the way to when the presidential primaries and those debates were happening. I think that we we're all kind of of the opinion that while Donald Trump had been turning the Republican uh, proceedings into kind of a shit show, what you saw happening on the Democratic side, and it was a pity that not many people got to see this because of the way they were scheduled, was uh, some interesting an interesting debate within the party about the future of its economic outlook. Would you say that we've come through that process now and the 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 momentum is now shifting to a to a more progressive style of economic policy? I mean, I've always sort of because we can say that's what he just said. <laughs> we can say, well, would you? Can we? Can we? Can, rather, can we credit the presidential primary and the thoughtfulness of that debate as something that really helped catalyze and firm hmm. up these positions? You know, in a weird way, I think the uh, uh, pure insanity on the Republican side of the ticket, uh, coupled with uh, a, a much more measured and very clear critique 
from Bernie Sanders, uh, I think, has really changed the way centrists think about this. Because it's one thing to have leftists going around saying people identify as democratic socialists calling for super progressive economic platform. Sure, definitely. Um, but when you see how just wild and crazy the Republican side has become, I think a lot of people in the center are thinking are thinking to themselves, gee, uh, how did we whip up this base of people that are now supporting God knows what <laughs> right. under, under this demagogue? Uh, maybe 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 we have to find a way to have some more economic stability here at home so people aren't so susceptible to this type of demagoguery. All right. Uh, well, <clears throat> interesting developments, uh, and uh, for once, we didn't feel like we were talking about garbage when talking about this campaign. So, good news for everyone. We have a good show coming up, too. That's good news for everybody. So, uh, please stick around and listen to the rest of it. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Uh, eight years after the financial meltdown, we're slowly moving from a dogged attempt to learn about the causes of the crisis to a new effort to learn lessons from the way different governments responded to the crisis. So joining us today, making his So That Happened debut, we have the chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And of course, we have Jason Lincolns as well. Yeah, this is Jason on Jason and Jason tag teaming you now. I will try not to confuse you <laughs> listeners with all these Jasons. Um, yes. So you gave this big speech last week that all the econodorks are talking about. It's like <laughs> the biggest nerd fiesta since the time that guy wrote the book with the charts and the data. Um, that guy was great. You talked about uh, sort of one order of economic consensus sort of replacing another. What? What? Let's just start with what the old sort of way of thinking was um, that, that you now see sort of going out with the tide. Sure. I started in graduate school at Harvard in the 1990s, and the view I was taught was that fiscal policy really didn't have a role, that monetary policy could take care of any problems that the economy faced, that if we tried to do fiscal policy, it might not even work, or if it did, it would have really bad side effects, that we mainly needed to be worried about running up the debt, and so we should be cutting the debt, not engaged in fiscal expansion. And then finally, there were some people that had the heretical view that maybe you could do fiscal policy, but make it really short, <laughs> really quick, and then get out of it as fast as possible. And, and by, that, by fiscal policy, here we're uh, talking, I'm about talking about fiscal stimulus, fiscal expansion, using spending money from, from uh, the government, spending money or cutting taxes as a way to get yourself out of a recession. Right. And monetary policy being the Federal Reserve 
sort of moving interest rates to change the amount of money right. in the economy. Right. Exactly. And this is, you know, 100 years ago, no one thought the government could do anything about recessions and booms. One of the big important discoveries of John Maynard Keynes was that we actually can, that recessions aren't inevitable. The government can engage in policy. And so for a long time, that was fiscal and monetary policy. Then economists decided, you know what, let's just use one of those two. Let's just mm. have the Fed try to get us out of recessions and the people in charge of taxes and spending, you know, they should stay out of the way and let the Fed do their job. That so, was where we were about 50, 10 years ago. All right. So flash forward to today. We've just been through this crisis. We're trying to learn lessons. You're rethinking the things you learned in the past. I assume you have uh, other people who, who who probably are joining you in this rethink. What what is it that you've, that you've that you've learned since that has prompted you to reinvigorate this idea that you know Keynesian fiscal stimulus has a role, if not maybe a more leading role, to play in helping us get out of these deep holes? Yeah, and I should be clear, you know, I've been thinking about this, but a lot of people have. Sure, and what's sure. really remarkable is you see the places like the IMF and the OECD that historically played the role of chiding governments for spending too much money. Yeah are now out there doing some of the most cutting-edge research, finding the ways in which fiscal stimulus can help the economy. So I think a few things have happened. One, we've discovered that interest rates are a lot lower. And when interest rates are a lot lower, monetary policy has less scope for for conventional policy. So that gives more of a role to fiscal policy. But second of all, we've discovered that instead of having bad side effects, that fiscal policy can actually have positive side effects. So right now we're worried, for example, that businesses are investing too little. Mm -hmm. It turns out if the government invested more, that could actually lead businesses to invest more. It could expand our economy, create more growth, and the growth could lead the businesses to invest more. So instead of it being a trade-off, it can actually be positive. A lot of the debate, especially in Europe, centers around this question of fiscal space. Sure, it may help to expand but can we afford it? The answer increasingly among economists is we can't afford not to engage in fiscal expansion. The reason being that fiscal expansion grows the economy and a larger economy makes your debt more sustainable. So it can actually help with your fiscal sustainability. You know, moreover, when interest rates are lower, we can afford to have a higher debt um, and then finally, all of this says that when you're engaged in a fiscal expansion, you don't want to just do it really quickly and then stop. You really want to stay with it until you've completed the job. And in the process, you can build some roads, build some bridges, right. and do things that will add to our economy. So uh, this this idea of, of having a sustained commitment to economic growth through, through a, a fiscal expansionary policy um, – you mentioned that this is something that John Maynard Keynes came up with in 1936. How how did the economics profession go about sort of unlearning that? You know, that's a, that's a good question. And, and a certain amount of social science involves coming up with very paradoxical ideas that sometimes can be wrong. And the idea that if the government cut taxes, people wouldn't spend more money. They would just save all that extra money to repay the taxes in the future was one of those paradoxical mm -hmm. ideas, and it was just um, wrong. Some of it, though, is that the world has actually evolved. Back when interest rates were higher, there was more scope for monetary policy. I think fiscal policy shouldn't have been forgotten entirely, but it wasn't quite as important. But now that the world has changed for a variety of reasons to make interest rates lower, you know, when you face a recession in the future, and I'm not predicting one, I think our economy is in very good shape right now, but if 
you know, at some point in the future, there will be less room for monetary policy than there has been in the past. Therefore, we really need fiscal expansion. You, you mentioned this concept in your speech uh, about a, sh- a shortage of safe assets. Uh, and this is something that you hear a lot when you talk to nerdy people, but I don't think the public in general has ever heard of this. Uh, could you explain what that, that sort of problem is? Sure. It's very desirable to a lot of institutions and a lot of people to have something that is just as safe as cash, mm-hmm. but has a higher rate of return than cash. Mm-hmm. Cash has a rate of return of zero. You don't get any interest <laughs> right. um, on, on the money in your wallet. So there's a desire to have something with a higher rate of return. In you know, 2005, six, and seven, people would buy money market funds. And then what the money market funds would do to get their yields as high as possible, they'd buy stuff that was pretty safe, but actually not quite as safe as you thought. Mm. And a lot of the subprime debt repackaged in all sorts of ways they'd buy to juice their returns. People thought of it like cash, but it turned out it wasn't cash. And some of those money market funds ended up, you put a dollar in, you didn't get a dollar back. That's not something that ever happens with cash. You don't lose your money. Mm. So this is desire for safe assets. Now, the question is, where do these safe assets come from? Well, the financial system can manufacture them, but it turns out that's not super safe. Right. Another place is the federal government can issue debt. Our debt is incredibly safe. We are going to pay our debt. It's not something anyone needs to worry about. And so there actually is some advantage to the government issuing debt creating a product that's very valued by people and by the financial system and doing it in a very safe manner. And this is how you get some of that fiscal space you're talking about, right? Exactly. And so that puts the United States in probably a more advantageous position than some of the or, or European nations or European allies in approaching these same problems, correct? That's correct. Um, there's a lot of demand for United States treasuries. We can borrow at relatively low rates, and that's something you know, I'm not worried about losing as a country. I think when it comes to Europe, part of the lesson for them is actually engaging in a more centralized fiscal policy that each one of the countries in the euro area has a hard time, you know, borrowing and engaged in fiscal stimulus on its own. But if they all got together, they could do it in a much better manner and, and really rival the United States in that regard. One of the things you talk about in your in your in your in your in your in your document speech um, is that in the post World War II years, the fiscal approach was sort of the accepted way of doing business and clawing uh, back out of the hole. But as we know from Thomas Piketty, the fact that there was a huge destructive war was the thing that precipitated the need for growth and expansion in the first place. Can we? Uh, use fiscal policy as effective when it's uncoupled from a gigantic, destructive world war? Yeah. I mean, it's our choice what we want to do. If we want to surge investment into infrastructure because we think we have a problem as a country with crumbling roads and bridges, we can make that choice. We can do that. It will help create jobs in the short run and leave us more productive in the long run. We don't need to sit around and and wait for a war. (laughs) <laughs> so what does this say about uh, about the American response to, to the, the financial crisis in 2008? Are, are there lessons from this that, that show that maybe we should have approached things differently than we did? Look, I think initially we had a very large fiscal response. The Recovery Act was over $700 billion. It was done within a month of the president coming into office. I think often people don't appreciate that we came back another dozen times and did a payroll tax cut more expanded unemployment insurance benefit, tax incentives for infrastructure and a range of other things that actually doubled that fiscal response to $1.4 trillion. 
And that, I think, helped put the United States on a path that means our economies outpace the euro area, Japan, and some of the other advanced economies. But then at the end of 2012, we abruptly withdrew that fiscal support. We let, for example, extended unemployment insurance benefits end, even though long-term unemployment was still too high. We let some of the other things go away, and I think that created a challenge and a headwind for our economy, and we'd be in better shape today if we had taken some of the fiscal steps that President Obama had proposed. I think people forget how much the the, the overall spending at the state and local level just went off a cliff yeah, at, definitely. In, in 2008 and 2009. So when you say we put $1.4 trillion into the economy, we did at the federal level, but there's this sort of countervailing austerity uh, just forces that get put in motion when you have a and There are a lot of job losses like that. in that sector, probably more than in private sector yeah. as well. So when, when you were talking about a more centralized response in, in Europe, is this something that, that the EU can, can just do by itself? Is, you know, we've seen so far, it seems like its policy is really being directed generally by, by Germany. And most of the, the demands are, are tend to be, at least on the, the countries that are in trouble, demands for some pretty intense austerity terms. Yeah, I think when it comes to Europe, there's part of the issue is a debate over the theory. And I gave you my perspective. My perspective, I think, is shared by the IMF, the OECD, and an increasing number of economists. I also think it's probably shared by the facts and the theory as well. So some of it's that debate over ideas, but some of this is also just the institutions of Europe. Europe was built with monetary policy that can work in the whole euro area, but fiscal policy is country by country. Mm -hmm. And if you think all you need is monetary policy to deal with a recession, that's just fine. But once you think you need fiscal policy to deal with a recession and you think recessions can be sustained and across all the countries, you need something different. In terms of what you need, um, that's something Europe would need to figure out. But right now they have a set of rules that actually get in the way. So you could change the way those rules were interpreted. You could update those rules. You could start engaging in more things at the level of Europe, for example, Europe-wide unemployment insurance benefits, um, or even have a European-level fiscal policy. And these are all things that are, are worth their considering. All right. Well, Jason Furman, the chief bank dork in the Obama administration, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. And we're very, very happy to be here with Arthur Delaney. Hello. You're, you're happy to be here, right, Arthur? Always. Okay, good, good, good. And we are very excited. Um, once again, friend of the podcast, Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble is joining us over the phone. Congressman Ribble, welcome once again to the show. We're so happy to have you. It's fun to be on the show from Wisconsin. I'm actually in my office today. This is great. We've had a lot of variety in our sort of like uh, podcast setups. We've visited you in D.C. You've called us from Wisconsin. We get around, right? We get around. Get around. So, Congressman Ribble, you're in home for what's often called a district work period. Uh, I assume most, you know, many members of Congress right now are campaigning for re-election, but you're not running. So are you sort of on vacation? 
No, no, I'm I'm actually doing what I've done every October that I've uh, been in office, uh, continuing to do my job here, representing the constituents of Northeast Wisconsin. I've already had three meetings this morning on various pieces of legislation that constituents would like me to support, and this is this is typical for uh, for the October the October break that we have uh, on election years. I continue to do the work that I believe the constituents up here want me to do. Outside of your typical October, I think you've probably noticed the rest of us are having a pretty atypical October. And um, this past week um, has been one of great strife um, between the uh, GOP's nominee, Donald Trump, and the rest of the party. He's now in open war with uh, Congressman Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan, seemingly unnecessarily. Um, and over the week, we've seen a lot of Republicans sort of abandon uh, Trump to his own devices. But you get to say, I told you so, right? Well, but there's no joy in that for me. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I, I think it was a year ago in September that I, I came out and said I didn't uh, believe that he was the right person to lead our country. But I would also say this, that I think some of what was what, what has been characterized in the press in relationship to Paul Ryan's comments on our conference call have been misrepresented. Okay. Paul Ryan never said in, on that conference call that he would not support Donald Trump. What he said was he would not defend the indefensible. And when Donald Trump says something that's indefensible, don't expect Paul Ryan, and, he, and the, the candidate also should not expect any Republican to defend it. What Paul Ryan did say is that he's going to continue to support the nominee, but he's going to do what other speakers have done in the past, and that is focus his attention on down-ballot races that he feels he can move the needle on. Boehner didn't travel around the country with Mitt Romney. Nancy Pelosi didn't travel around the country with Barack Obama. And why should someone expect Paul Ryan to travel around the country with Donald Trump? He's a member of Congress. So Congressman Reed Ribble, uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, had this conference call with his conference on Monday, and you were on the call. And it, it, what was reported was that you know he wouldn't defend. And I thought the press did a good job of noting that he's saying he won't defend Donald Trump while not saying he won't endorse him. It's, it's like he's having it both ways on the question of Donald Trump. No, I don't think, it, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think what Paul, Ryan, what Paul Ryan told the conference on the conference call is that this is no different than any other presidential year for members of Congress. He himself was going to focus his attention on down-ballot races. He would defend Donald Trump on policy, but he wasn't going to defend Donald Trump on indefensible things that might come out about him. And Paul has been doing that for the last six months. You guys have heard him, you know, uh, light uh, Trump on fire over the, the judge, <laughs> Deanna, and other things that, that Mr. Trump has said that have kind of just gone off the rails. Paul's totally consistent here. And uh, people are acting like there's some big change in, in where he's at, and there's not. I think people have just noted what seems to be and, and continues to seem to be a contradiction between this very heavy criticism where he you know, said this is the dictionary definition of a racist statement or, you know, I can't support his, his crotch-grabbing ways and the fact that he still endorses him. Yeah, I think, I think what, you're, what you're seeing here is Republicans are a bit in a quandary. They, they see some... They also see disqualifying statements by Hillary Clinton and disqualifying actions by Hillary Clinton, and they're trying to make a determination of which of these disqualifications override the other. Right. And uh, in this case, some members of the conference are saying, 
I just can't take Donald Trump anymore, so I can't support him. Neither can I support Hillary Clinton. Other members are saying what Hillary Clinton has done in relationship to her email, in relationship to her, her, her private conversations with Goldman Sachs, in relationship to four Americans that were, were killed in Benghazi, I can't support her. And so Donald Trump would be the only alternative. And, and members have to find their own place in this. I don't, you know, I just, I don't think we're trying to say that Paul Ryan has sought or brought this kind of unique circumstance on himself. Obviously, uh, what's been foisted on him by this nominee is not something that was foisted on Nancy Pelosi when she was supporting Barack Obama or John Boehner, who's supporting Mitt Romney. And we certainly have never seen uh, this whole thing where a presidential candidate literally publicly lambasts the nominal intellectual leader of his own party is unprecedented to me. Uh, regardless of how people think about whether Paul Ryan should endorse, rescind his endorsement, whatever, how does that affect the mood uh, on Capitol Hill among your colleagues? What you see this happening? It, it's as different as the member of col- my my colleague uh, is from where they where they represent. Let's face the facts that uh, a member of Congress, a Republican member of Congress, that might be representing a very red district in in Alabama or Texas, uh, that. That message that they're getting from voters is likely to be very different than a member of Congress uh, representing a Republican district in in New England, uh, upstate New York, or even Wisconsin that are much more purple. And um, you don't have the the very hard right elements that you might have from Southern conservatives. And so what Paul Ryan was expressing, listen, you guys pay very close attention to the lead of your constituents because you know them better than anybody else. And um, and feel free to do what you think is necessary for you to win your election. And I don't think that that's uh, unwise uh, advice. I think it was. In fact, I think it's pretty smart advice. Yeah, I I think that's been smart advice from Jump Street. Let's. Do you want to? Let's so, talk about. Yeah, Congressman Reed Ribble. Congress will be back after this election, and it will be a lame duck. Uh, but it's got stuff to do. What's you? You have a a temporary. Uh, government funding that will lapse, and and Congress has to do something. What's going to happen? Yeah, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the House of Representatives take the the, the remaining eleven uh, appropriations bills, divide them maybe into two or three packages, and and advance those through the House, while the Senate simultaneously will be working on an omnibus where it's all one document. Uh, ultimately, what, what's going to happen is the House and Senate are going to be passing an omnibus spending bill um, because they weren't able to pass their, their 12 appropriations bills in regular order uh, through either chamber. And so uh, that that's what's going to happen. That'll happen by December 9th. And uh, and that that'll kind of wrap up business for the year. And And are you fond of this style of governance? No, I think it's I think it's crazy. No. I have offered I've offered uh, changes to fix this problem, and maybe just maybe we'll get a chance to vote on those fixes. Uh, I, I think there is an ever increasing frustration by Democrats and Republicans, particularly in the House of Representatives, to recognize that this system doesn't work. And I think they would be inclined to vote for something that might give us a chance to fix it. And so hopefully some of my legislation will also advance through the lame duck. I, I wonder if this could be an opportunity for. You know, a, a, a more regular order since the political conversation has been really 
not on Congress at all lately. It's been about crotches and and uh, yeah. other stuff. And and uh, so does Congress have any cover to actually do some legislating? Or do you think you really think it, it won't just be crammed into a last minute thing that people have to vote on uh, one giant package, not not totally knowing what's in it? Well, it, it's going to end up as one giant package. Ultimately, the final product is going to be that. Cause I don't see any other way that it's going to get done. Um, we can talk about minibuses, as the speaker calls them. But once they get over to the Senate, they're going to combine it all into a single bill. And so the final document is going to be an omnibus spending bill minus uh, the military uh, military construction VA package that passed into CR a couple of weeks ago. And so call it what you like. Um, it's going to be a big bill that's going to have to move. But I think we're going to get a chance to do some other things as well. Uh, yeah, you've ta- we've talked about those in the past. Um, do you think biennial, this is an opportunity for bi- uh, the case being for biennial budgeting? I, I think it actually absolutely sets up uh, a possibility for this to advance. We've been in conversations with the Budget Committee chairman and Budget Committee staff uh, to uh, to make some modifications to the amendment process to my biennial budgeting bill to align it uh, much closer to what the Senate is likely to do. And uh, maybe if we uh, if we work really hard in the uh, upcoming weeks, we can get a chance to uh, fix this problem and uh, have a better system for next term. Well, Congressman Reed Ribble, I want to just end on some good news for you. In 27 days, this will all be over one way or the other. Yeah, it, it, it will be, and uh, maybe it'll be good news for the American people. And uh, But I'm, I'm, I am, as I've said many times on this podcast, I am disappointed with, with the choices that America is facing right now. True that, true that. Okay, Congressman Ribble, thank you for joining us. We'll hopefully get you in a few more times before you retire and just become a normal private citizen like the rest of us schmucks. But uh, but thanks for coming on the show. Arthur, of course, it's great to have you on the show. If you're oh, here, thanks. It's thank like, you. I don't need to thank you. You work here. No. Um, and uh, we will be right back. And we're back. And look, uh, if you've lasted this far, we've lasted this far, too. And, and now we kind of have to talk about the gross story that has kind of consumed the lives of everyone who's been covering politics this week. And that is uh, the fact that Donald Trump's road to 270 apparently is a road to 270 separate instances of sexual assault. And it's making us all feel kind of bad about ourselves. Here to help me feel bad about this, Zach Carter. See accusations of sexual assault, at least. Yes, and and <laughs> and Lauren Weber. Yeah, thanks for having me on for this enlightening conversation. <laughs> so there has been a flood since Friday last about Donald Trump and him sort of being the guy we all thought he was mm-hmm. of gross. Letch, and now we're sort the the we're sort of now I think maybe chin deep in the sewage with Sh- the promise. Chin deep? I think we're still just shin up, deep. We're up. We're up to the eyeballs. No. Oh, I don't know. We're, Look, multiple we're women have come then. forward and said that Donald Trump uh, sexually assaulted them. 
Um, there's several in a New York Times article. There's some other. There's another woman in a Palm Beach Post article. The woman by the People t- magazine. There's a People magazine. Yeah. yeah. By the time you are listening to this, there may be more because these no. accusations we, tend we to come, co- yeah. come in a flood once somebody has the courage to come forward. As, we can't guarantee. As the that campaign manager said, unless. There's and there's also been there's also been the accusations of him walking in on uh, his pageants while the pageant They're changing just for changing clothes, including Miss Teen USA yeah, contestants, which is, which is really just disgusting on a really bad and visceral level. And it's been this way since since Friday, and and now apparently the floodgates are opening. <sighs> Lauren, you were saying something earlier about a more innocent time in our oh, lives. Oh, at a more innocent time in 2015, someone on Twitter pointed out that the worst dirt that the New York Times could drag up on Marco Rubio was something about him having a boat and some red light <laughs> tickets. Don't we all right. wish for those times? Yeah. I, yes. I'm just going to stand up for the the failing New York Times here. Uh, that, that story <laughs> that story about Marco Rubio not being able to handle his finances and then... Uh, having some pretty shady transactions with the, the state of Florida in order to fill the hole. I thought that was a totally legit story. I, I still think they went after him for having having a boat, having, yeah, the, having the dream of the boat. So the boat. I'm with you, Marco. Just the fact that they, they did, like, completely mischaracterize the boat as some kind of luxury thing when what we really had was, like, the same shitty-ass fishing boat that everyone in Florida dreams of. I just think you gotta you got to look at... Marco Rubio, this this was not what was going to happen to him if he had been the nominee. He's the sunshine kid compared to Trump. Well, so here's what's interesting is that in the, you know, as, as if there hadn't already been like a thousand things Trump has done in this campaign that the media certainly thought was disqualifying. And I used the media. In fact, I shouldn't say the media. Sane people thought uh, was, was disqualifying. But there is this sort of meme that's out there in, in right wing Twitter in, in, you know, conservative Internet land that says the release of of all of these sexual assault allegations and old tapes of Donald Trump saying, like, that he sexually assaults women, um, that that is all part of the media coordinating with the Clinton campaign, that they've had these stories for a year and they sat on them to sabotage him in the primary, uh, not in the primary, in the general election, rather the primary. And that is insane. That is just insane. Yeah. If... I think that if we had gotten any news about these kind of scandals, we would not have sat on it for a year and a half. We would have published, published it immediately. It. Yeah, immediately. Once it was verified. Yeah, as soon as it's verified, you publish it. it the, we can't help but, but the fact that there are people out there in the world of political dark arts called opposition researchers who do try to find dirt and then do try to keep it to themselves to disperse it at strategic times. You know, nobody actually walks up to you at the beginning of a campaign and says, here's all my opposition research reporters go to town. <laughs> like, that would be defeating the purpose. Yes. Yeah, no. um, so we can't help, we can't help that this, this that, that, that sometimes the timing of things is what it is because people have coordinated that. But they don't coordinate it with us. They, if, if they had come to us, if anyone for the Clinton campaign had come to us and said, we have this shit, first of all, we wouldn't have taken their fucking word for it. We would have done our own parallel investigation to verify right, and assure our readers that every claim we were making was true and accurate. And then we wouldn't have sat around in the meeting and said, well, when can we, when can we put this out so it does the best harm to Donald Trump? There was never a, from my perspective, there was never a bad time to to harm Donald Trump. He's a dangerous, racist, maniac, fascist, lunatic, and I would have done it 
from Jump Street if I had had the opportunities. Uh, and, Sorry. And, 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 and I, I mean, you're reporting I'm biased, facts. Though, I'm biased but, in favor of keeping our democracy you, out of the hands this, of strong These men. are reports of facts, though, just to clarify. This is Absolutely. Not, it's not, you know, an agenda to harm. It's a, this happened. No. This is a thing that is of public interest because this man could be the leader of the free world. Yeah, and if if, if I could have debunked, if I could, if I could have verifiably debunked a false claim against Donald Trump, I would have done that, too, because that doesn't serve anybody's purpose either. Either. You know, I think that a lot of people have these crazy ideas about how the media business works. A lot of people think that we're dependent on clickbait articles in an election year to get through our daily lives and pay our rent. And the truth of the matter is, I think that just about everyone here, at least, would love to have a much calmer election that's saner and maybe more policy oriented and not as zany as everyone this thinks. This nightmare that we're living yeah, in. Everyone also, thinks frank, we're frankly, in terms of the excited clickbait, about this. Donald Trump says dumb thing. Uh, gets you just as many clicks as the bombshell report on sexual assault does. Uh, the, you do the bombshell report because it's a good story, not for the clicks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I also think, you know, at least speaking to speaking to uh, those of our listeners who are in, in the right wing uh, conspiracy theory business, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there, there are such things as conservative reporters. There are conservative publications. Yeah. And they do research, too. And there are also conservative politicians who ran against Donald Trump who could have done their own opposition research as well. That's right. Um, so the, the, the idea that there's a big media conspiracy to sit on this stuff uh, until the the you know the last possible minute is just just totally nuts and it's bonkers. Can I, can <laughs> I talk about the seriously. other thing that has been bothering me too? The, Absolutely, this, we're re- here for everyone. The, the repeal the nineteenth hashtag. Have you all seen this? Yes, it's a uh, five thirty eight did a couple electoral maps showing how the country would vote and how the election would go if just men voted and if just women voted. And this is not going to surprise anybody, but if only women voted, it would be an electoral landslide for Hillary Clinton. And if the opposite was true, it'd be an electoral on the inside for Donald Trump. And so Trump fans took it pretty well. Yes, that's one way of putting <laughs> because that's it. what they do. They take everything very well. <laughs> they take well. everything very well. They, I, I mean, I just it's horrific to me that in 2016 we can post something and have it trend that implies that half of the country should not be able to vote. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of amazing and, and disgusting. And but, I think a lot of, I think probably a lot of women saw that. And but hey, the plus side of this is gross the, about that too the 538 yeah, map which said which had the you know trump winning in a landslide if only men voted the west coast was solidly for clinton and this to me suggests that actually hippie west coast liberal guys are like kind of kind of you know better than i thought so clearly clearly <laughs> i need to move to the west coast is, is Zach's it is it is nice to be able to say that about them yeah yeah, yeah. i mean the other thing the other thing you could say is if this election goes the way it's going to go, you know, and you didn't want the country to fall into the hands of a fascist dictator, thank the women in your life because they probably saved your bacon. Think, thank the black women in your life like twice. Take them all out to brunch. OK, and, and, and listen to them for a change and, and maybe ban men. Consider it. Um, I will say one last thing. But apparently not West Coast men. <laughs> but not <laughs> West, Coast West Coast men. <laughs> I will say one last thing. This is just an observation that I have to get out there. One of the parallel stories that we were tracking at the same time as we're getting all the stuff about the uh, 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 um, Donald Trump's allegations is we got the WikiLeaks stuff about Hillary Clinton. And one yeah. of the one of the more profound things that we learned was that someone at the Clinton campaign actually went back and said, look, I've done oppo on you because I've read all your speeches, and here are some areas where people could come at you. And 
that made news. But the one observation that I don't think anyone made is why wasn't there someone in the Trump campaign doing the same thing? You know, the big news <laughs> out of that is like at least the Clintons were running a standard issue campaign where professionals said, here are your vulnerabilities. We're going to sit down and have a really uncomfortable conversation about all the ways you fucking suck. <laughs> you know, that's how it was supposed to work. Anyway, uh, that's what, just, uh, what a world. Know, Paul Ryan's a traitor. I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with that guy. God, 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 God. <laughs> uh, to be fair, actually, I, I mean, Trump occasionally says things that I think are totally true. Like, I actually you, would not want to be in a foxhole, period, you, but not with Paul Ryan either. Do you guys think that <laughs> if Donald Trump had run 20 years ago at a time where the mores were much, much different, where Bill Clinton was able to skate on so much wither smoke there, fire accusations that were similar, that 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 Trump may have, like, skated on some of this stuff? Have I, we, have we I actually... think it would have been perceived much differently. I, I do. Yeah, I, I think if you if you rewind the tape, you know, to the Clinton years, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's no way that contemporary feminism would have reacted today the way it did in the, the 1990s. Yes, uh, good. So, so we're, so we're actually ending on a good note that what the trend in our sort of like public morality has been virtuous over the past two decades, and so if you have to deal with this swamp of Trump allegations be happy at least that we now think these things are bad and worth pointing out. Right? There's that. I'll take that. I'll okay. take that uplifting note. I'll take it. All right. That's that's all we got for you in terms of uplift this week. <laughs> Next week, we will buy everyone a puppy. Um, so enjoy on that. On Jason's credit card. Look, on, my, on, on AOL, on Marco Verizon's Rubio's credit card. Credit card. <laughs> Marco Rubio's yeah. credit card. Right. Marco Rubio's going to buy everyone a puppy. And take you on a ride on his boat. <laughs> and take you on a ride on his boat. We'll hold Marco Rubio to that. And, and maybe you'll vote for him next time. I don't know. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, and we'll be back with the final message. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman. Also, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble is here, along with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.